would uh, like to ask for your attention. Can we have some more light in here? Seems a bit glum. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Good, I would like to address some context for Satipatthana practice. And uh, this is not a guided meditation, so I need you to to be with me on this. Um, as you're likely aware, there's many ways one can understand these teachings on Satipatthana. They seem so rich. They continue to be interpreted. And uh, there are many ways, I believe many legitimate ways in which one can approach these uh, very saturated blueprint of a contemplative program as we find it in the variety of teachings that cover the area of Satipatthanas, most notably, obviously, the two, the two famous Satipatthana suttas in the long discourses and in the middle discourses, which are with one section uh, identical then a much lesser known abbreviated version of the Satipatthana and the Abhidhamma. Then the many small teachings scattered in other areas of the Buddhist text, and most notably about 104, if I remember correctly, 104 little texts that are actually all referring to Satipatthana teachings in the Satipatthana Samyutta. So we have quite a number of actual scattered teachings. In a way, they are coalesced in the Satipatthana Suttas, um, an important text that we will keep revisiting. Right now, I am interested in using the Satipatthanas as a basic map of experience. So think of Satipatthanas on the scale of the Khandas, the aspects of experience. Think of the Satipatthanas on the something on the scale of the ayatanas, the sense spheres. So there aren't really that many models for what we would call experience. You know? I it is my conviction that Satipatthana is one of such models. In other words, Satipatthana is not a med, not just a medita meditation method. It is certainly that, but it is more than that. Satipatthana is a map of an event in my experience. That map suggests um, there is a somatic aspect to it, to this experience, to that uh, specific event that may be a sound, or that may be a thought, or that may be a visual encounter, or that may be a touch experience, or that may be waking up from a dream, or something like that. Yeah, That would be an event in my experience. Now, every event has differing dimensions. One of them is a somatic bodily uh, dimension. In other words, something happens in the body when this experience takes place. That's what the first of the Satipatthanas would speak of. 
There is no experience that does not involve your body. Even a jhana involves your body. In fact, all the analogies about jhanas are given in most bodily, almost sensuous terms, if you look at the text very clearly. There's a profound connection between deep stillness of mind, which is a mental phenomena, and the effect it has on the body. There's a connection, a recurring connection between the notion of embodiment and the stillness or the, the realization that comes from calm. The person who is uh, having a realization or whose main axis to liberation goes via samadhi is called a kayasaki, one who witnesses by the body, yeah. which is quite unexpected. So this is necessary to hold that together, that our notion of body and mind are not necessarily how this is paralleled in the suttas. There is another way of thinking about body and mind as it comes from Buddhist psychology, more deeply different than many of us may be aware of. It is one of the blessings of Buddhist teaching, Buddhist psychology and philosophy in particular, to have been spared that regretful rift that go through Occidental philosophy's understanding of mind and body, that cleft that seems to be between um, anything from Aristotle onward to Descartes, basically the, rip, the rift that goes between the experience, the split that goes between the body and the mind, that all our experience seems to somehow be um, beset by um, discrepancy in there, or irreconcilable nature that is different for one and the other. And it is uh, the beauty of Buddhist teaching that this is not the case. You cannot split body and mind along the lines in Buddhist teaching. A few unfortunate attempts have been made, but on the whole, Buddhist traditions, pretty much across the board, have understood that the smallest unit of experience in Buddhist teaching is threefold. It comprises an aspect called Nama, it comprises an aspect called Rupa, and it comprises an aspect called Vijnana. And you can't really make it smaller than this. So there's always three things at least involved in any event in your experience. A mentality aspect, a corporeality aspect, and a consciousness aspect, a sense consciousness aspect that acts as the medium. So, Channel 2 of the Satipatthanas refers to a very important dimension in our experience, and this is the pleasure-displeasure aspect. It, strictly speaking, can be called hedonic. Although, <coughs> although this is a slightly arbitrary word, it does actually exactly say what, it, uh, what Vedana refers to, namely, the amount of pleasure or displeasure inherent in my current experience. Hedone, Greek, pleasure, uh, is the strictly technical term for this. So it's best to make clear in your mind that the usual translations of feeling, which is particularly unfortunate for Vedana, are generally misleading. So it's important to understand it's not even your liking yet. Yeah? Vedana does not even concern your degree of liking. We're speaking strictly of the pleasure the liking generally is what follows the pleasure. 
And then the reactiveness, the wanting to get hold of it, keep it, contrast it, strengthen it. You know, that's yet another layer later. But the simple primary experience of what Buddhist teachings call Vedana is the degree of pleasurable or unpleasurable immediate resonance. This is not connected with will. You don't have a say in it, about it. When it's happening, it is completely consequential. It's completely vipaka in terms of Buddhist teaching. It's important. The only say you have in it is how honest you are with yourself about the fact that it takes place. And obviously you have a few things to say what you, where you go from this, what you do with it. There you have a lot of say in it. But it's important to understand this is a clearly, this is different. Vedana is not intentional. Most of the stuff we're doing is intentional. Attention is intentional. Vedana is not. So that second channel of human experience speaks of receptivity and it speaks of something in us that on a very profound structural level resonates with ah or resonates with ah, yeah? Vedanas do generally not speak. When it starts to speak, it's no longer real Vedana. So that second channel is part, again, of all of our events and experience. So every little thought, every big sensation, uh, every visual impression will have a flavor of Vedana, will have a flavor, a hedonic flavor. That is quite an important aspect of our experience. If we look, as I said yesterday, at the nature of conditioned, of uh, involuntary attention, we see most of involuntary attention is organized around the seeking of gratification and pleasure, pleasant experience and the studious avoidance of what is displeasing to us and what is um, not gratifying. So, you may feel quite neutral and quite harmless, but you have a few powerful pieces of software running, even though they may not declare themselves to be that, that stir your attention towards things that either gratify or at least promise gratification, and that take you away from things that are unpleasant, uncomfortable, uninteresting, um, and you tend to move your attention along those lines quite explicitly and quite studiously even though this may not be completely conscious that's important to acknowledge we're not neutral our attention is not neutral there's a second channel of our experience pleasant unpleasant hedonic the third channel is affective. Third channel, well, chitana, um, is as raw material a lot more than just emotion, but it is also emotion. So uh, then there are a variety of differing emotions. You have mood, you have affect, you have emotion, you have state. Yeah. All of these things, they color our mind. They color the cognitive functioning of mind. They color the climate. They are something like the weather in your mind. Um, we tend to identify quite strongly with such a weather. 
we tend to um, that's where we go to when we are asked how are you doing or you know what how are you feeling then generally we are going to touch into that mood quality and we are reporting the mood quality that third dimension of experience also has most powerful elements in there called sankara it has something to do with volition now that volition uh, being an abstract term in everyday language would have many other terms yeah, it would be something like um, uh, longing or aspiration or aversion or joy or um, desire all these would be forms of volition yeah. anything that has a direction yeah. anything that is strictly speaking intentional is part of that third channel now as we know Buddhist teaching insists that most of our experience is intentional so this is a huge chunk of our experience anything that is restless in you anything that feels effusive has a quality of intention. So that third channel preoccupies a lot of our, you know, if we kind of have segments, and it takes a, a huge chunk. Even though I may not speak about this, I may keep silent about how I feel. How I feel is important to me. I take that quite personal. If we are not feeling well on channel three, basically, it's it's going to have consequences. My metabolism goes down, my body tone goes down, my outlook on the world goes down, I, my cognitive functioning is profoundly impaired, yeah? my outlook on the future is um, either bright when I'm in love or glum when I'm depressed. Yeah? So it's very hard for us when the weather has massive changes there on channel three that we just kind of carry on what we do it's difficult for us to muster up energy or to harness our energy it's difficult for us to feel confident if we if we are unhappy on channel three so that third dimension is huge in our experience and it's obviously also terrain where much buddhist practice happens this is where samadhi happens this is where purification happens this is where most of what the buddha calls bhavana development takes place channel four is the discursive channel that's where the story goes that's where the narrative is being spoken or told that is the channel which we take very serious yeah, that's the channel where we uh, try to make things meaningful to us. You know, I said yesterday that the brain is a, a huge meaning-generating machine. You know, that does a, you know, does a quite an impressive job. That starts with being inherently capable of understanding and knowing. You know, our whole awakening nature is in there. That's, you know, that's the good end of the spectrum. The kind of bad end of the spectrum is the kind of the, the commenta commentary chatter that goes on so much in our minds when we try to still our attention on things. It's a, this is a degenerative version of the awakening mind. You know, you're chattering everyday mind who is kind of regurgitating little phrases it has heard or kind of keeps saying little sentences and keeps using little... 
snippets of di discussion it has picked up. Anything from, you know, profound aphorisms down to spouting last week's advertisements or so. Yeah, that is the that is the the shallow end of that same awakening mind. That's the shallow end of the discursive channel. So in a very simplistic way, you could say the Satipatthanas help us orient in the complexity of experiencing one event in our mind and suggest that we look at this one event from different vantage points. One vantage point would be the somatic, the bodily one. One would be the hedonic, the pleasurable or displeasurable one. One vantage point would be the affective uh, one, including the impulse and volition. And one vantage point would be the cognitive discursive one. So we can say Satipatthana speak to us and suggest that we chunk our experience, quote unquote, into, say, four big areas, which we can, for practical purposes, disentangle. Technically, you can't really disentangle them, because whenever something happens, it happens on all of those channels. But you can choose on which channel you meet it. In other words, you can choose from which vantage point you're going to attend to it. If you're not going to make such a decision, you'll attend to it from channel four. Yeah? That's where the story goes. That's where I takes place. That's where my life and its drama, its and tragedy, its promise occurs. Yeah? That's where the major protagonist called me is going about living his life. That's where I have invested by my culture, by my society, by the functioning of my mind, I have been told to invest most of my attentional energy in channel four. Hmm? Now, sometimes this is not the most useful channel to be on, as you, as in TV, you know, these channels, they broadcast all the time. So just because they broadcast doesn't mean it's important what is being broadcast. And just because, you know, I seem to default to one particular channel. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the best or the most useful channel. So meditators have to learn to make some choices where their attention goes. In other words, where they, which channel they choose to attend to right now. First of all, it's necessary to be able, quite theoretically, uh, to map one's experience and actually identify these bits in one one's experience. You know. The bit I'm, that stands out now, is this a thought? That would be something on channel four. Or an image, that would be something on channel four. Or inner voices speaking to me, that would be also channel four. Or is this an emotion? Or is this a feeling in the body? Or does it just feel good? Or does it just feel rebarbative and bad? Yeah? That would be a Vedana. Now it's good to know these bits and to be able to recognize these bits in one's own experience, just as a map. As I said, you cannot really chop these channels apart. You do not consist of four channels, but for nominal reasons, it is very useful to identify differing vantage points from which you can experience what you call your own experience. We know any 
moment of our lives, so many things are happening. As soon as your mindfulness grows a little bit, you'll see it's just incredible how many things happen in such a short time. Even when you just sit here for hours, so many things happen. Your senses tell you constantly stuff. Your body tells you constantly stuff. Your mind responds to this. Um, even if nobody talks to you, even if you have your eyes closed, there's so much going on at any moment of your life. And it makes sense to make some choices where our attention most fruitfully abides and how most fruitfully it engages with that experience. The major task is simple. The task, let's call it, uh, we go from episodic moments of attention to an embodied mindfulness. Yeah? Normally our attention, we all have attention, it's episodic, it's topical, it's jumpy, it's fairly unsystematic and it's completely not in our choosing where that attention goes. Much of our time, our attention is basically pulled around by forces that impinge on us. And it's necessary to regain some authorship in that process. And we do regain some authorship in that process by identifying areas of our experience. And then we learn to shift attentional focus from a habitual area of experience to the most useful area of experience. So that's one of the maps. If you think of sati, of mindfulness, the thing you're actually wishing to cultivate, to deepen, to stabilize, to extend, then think of sati as a kind of attuned, attentional relationship. Think of when you do sati, you attune to something and you relate to something. Don't think of this as something that is bestowed on you when you do everything right, yeah? and you're waiting for this sort of childlike, hoping you would be graced with this, if you, you know. So think of something, think of sati something that you're doing. Technically, sati is a sankara. It belongs, um, uh, it belongs into the department of things you do. It's an activity. Uh, the most Comprehensive and the most simple image I can choose for sati is that you consciously relate to something. It is entering into an attuned, relational, focused process with something. That something may be inside, it may be outside, it may be big, it may be very minute. So if we cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate a form of relationship to something. We cultivate attending to something. As I said yesterday, attention is that part of mindfulness that can be directed, that can be bundled, that can be focused, that can be kept wide or made very fine and small. Yeah? So there's a, a dimension of mindfulness we can easily do, and that's attention. There's other things which we can't easily do. Say awareness. We can't. You can't really do awareness in my books. Yeah. But attention, we can do as a key component of mindfulness. We're trying to 
do two things with attention. A, we're trying to choose where it goes. That's the important part. And for that, this little map of the four channels is quite useful. And B, we're trying to train this attentional capacity. Once we're trying to train by length and its duration, yeah? to establish a temporal continuity. In other words, we're staying with things longer than we would probably do when we're, when we're just out for gratification. Yeah? So we, in sort of time elapses, we're trying to stay with things longer. That's one dimension of training for attention. The other dimension for training attention is space. We're trying to make it big and then we're trying to stabilize its capacity to stay big. Yeah? So that it doesn't shrivel whenever it gets hold of something. <coughs> that it, attention doesn't collapse onto its object. Yeah? So that would be the other dimension of training. Right now, it's important that we do the temporal continuity bit. Um, the spatial stability bit, powerful as it is, seems to work a lot better if we have some training in temporal continuity, if we have the skill to actually focus on something and stay there. Some of you will naturally incline to do that. You will immediately understand that this is what is useful. You will maybe even like doing that. It may give you psychological safety to have a clear resistant object, attend to this, stay with it, feel its contours and continue doing this. Others of you may feel resistance against this very suggestion. Others of you may prefer to stay wide and open and may prefer not to focus on things, may prefer not to stay with individual things, but may, may prefer to create a space in which things come and go. And you know. Generally, uh, we have uh, preferences. Yeah? Usually these preferences are so strong that we seek out the respective meditation traditions that favor one over the other. That's quite normal. All learning happens the way that we go there, where we actually hear what we already in some way believe. That's nothing new. That's just how learning happens. Yeah? When I want to learn something, I seek somebody who tells me something which I already kind of believe. Yeah? That's a very pleasant way of learning. It says doesn't just teach me a few new things, it also keeps telling me, you're right, you got it, this is exactly as you think, you know, this is very reassuring. So, so we all are a little bit like that. We find it slightly insulting to be taught something completely new. And it seems to get worse once you're beyond 25, we, start, we find it increasingly insulting to be told that we don't know something. We have a feeling that we should know, if it was important, you know, I should have encountered it or I should have really tweaked this long ago. So we begin to have a um, certain reluctance engaging with things that seem to be completely outside of our maps. So if you have such feelings, or if you have the feeling, I'm not going to do this, what he says, I'm just going to do what I usually do, uh, just practice listening to sounds or things like that, this is wonderful practice, but it is not, this, our, this is not our exercise right now. I am not against listening to sounds, but I am actually in favor of you making choices where you pay attention to, and then you stay with that, and then you look at how good you're doing this, how successful you are doing this. Not to grade you, but to give you a task and to make you practice with that task, because I do believe in the value of this. 
I do believe that the capacity to maintain attentional focus with things longer than you would just to get gratification or to just avoid displeasure is very, very powerfully transformative. And I do think this is the beginning of meditative uh, transformation, meditative mind, you know, mind cultivation. So there has to be some willingness in you to, to actually do something that is task-oriented for the time being. We will not only do this, but this is part of Satipatthana. And obvious suggestions for this practice are uh, right now are phenomena of the body. Kayanupasana has four ma uh, six major departments, of which some are quite famous and some are not famous. Uh, first one is posture. Uh, second one is uh, mindfulness of breathing as an aspect of body. Third one is uh, clear comprehension, generally interpreted in Satipatthana context as uh, referring to what your body does and feels and how it moves outside of formal meditation practice. Yeah. It's the bodily awareness of how you move through space, of how you behave in space, how you behave in respect to the rest of the universe. Particularly movement is uh, is in there so it is a, an interesting aspect that is not concerned with what we would call formal meditation practice our notion of formal meditation practice is completely alien in buddhist teaching to be honest yeah buddhist teaching if you look closely does not make the distinction between so-called formal meditation practice meaning in the hall or on your walking meditation path and the rest of life it does speak of sitting, and it does speak of walking, and it does speak of standing, and it does speak of lying as, uh, in some way, quintessential posture. But it doesn't say meditation stops when you're outside of these postures. There's a seamlessness and an insistence that this practice translates into other activities of our lives that we seem to shirk when we define meditation to be the thing we're doing here, and maybe if you're lucky outside on the path, and then uh, the rest is something else. You know? That is slightly arbitrary imposition on the texts, if we look at the texts. They do not tell us that. So, so these three items of body practice are dominant. This is what I would suggest you try to turn your attention to for the whole day and whenever, for every moment of your waking life. Yeah. So, posture, clearly comprehending what these bodies are doing, where parts of this body are moving and what other parts are doing, what this body is feeling, what this body's posture is, how it is oriented in space. And then, when you have done that for a while, and settled, you're doing anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, about which more later. Yeah. So, for the time being, four channels, there's four aspects of your experience. As in a TV, these channels are always on broadcast, but we choose on which channel we tune in. The tuning faculty is our attentional focus. Acknowledging where that is, is certainly a useful piece of orientation and Acknowledging also that we have a, a say in where that goes and that with some training it is quite possible to withstand habit and to choose 
another vantage point than the one I feel maybe most inclined to. I have a say in the matter. Attention and mindfulness, particularly as a cultivated form of attention, is not just observing. Yeah. We are not condemned to be helpless, dissociated, observing witnesses of our lives. You know, Mindfulness is quite an active quality. The Buddhist teachings speak of this quality in, uh, in terms that we would probably call intervention. We're not just called to observe things. We're called to engage with things. We're called to not give our consent to things. We're called to take things to a place of non-becoming. Yeah? That's a very polite term for escorting something outside. Yeah? We're called to bring things into being. That's the most potent notion. Bhavana, bring something into being. In other words, rather than waiting in sort of infantile ways till things fall into our lap, we're actually called to bring something into being that is, would be wholesome, but that is not here. Yeah? We're planting stuff, we're growing stuff. Yeah? So that, oh, that is very important to hear in a, in a world in which mindfulness is often portrayed as a sort of the non-judgmental hovering and an observing attitude, which sometimes is precious and sometimes is just not very effective. So I'll leave you with that for tomorrow, for today. Um, I would love to sit with you for a moment and please have a look at the board. I've left some notes for some of you folks I would like to see this morning. So I've seen some of these notes have not yet been uh, picked up. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.